Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. If you get a Bible out, open it up to Genesis, the 42nd chapter. Genesis chapter 42 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. And you will hear me ask you get your Bible out each other's time that I'm out the pulpit. Really do want you to be looking in the scriptures with me for these uh, few minutes that we have together. Don't want you to take my word for anything. We want you to see those things in the Bible. And if you've got a question, as Greg's already alluded to, or you need to get a disagreement with something that's said uh, over the course of these next couple of days, I would be just more than glad to sit down and entertain those thoughts with, with an open Bible. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. I'm just so delighted and excited to be here. Thank you so much to the congregation here at College View for the invitation to come and to get to, uh, to be with you. Thank you so much, brother, for the good prayer that you let us in. And, uh, brother, for the good songs that you let us in. Greg, thank you for that introduction of all the introductions that I received. That is the most recent, so thank you for that. Uh, but it's just great to get to be here, and I'm just uh, really excited about the things that we're uh, going to be about the business of uh, over these next couple of days. I, I really do appreciate uh, this congregation uh, p- providing an opportunity like this uh, that all of us can be benefited, uh, but specifically to ask for lessons that would be particularly of, of benefit to young people. You know, there's lots of churches and religious groups today that are doing things for young people in unauthorized ways, but I'm glad to know that there are churches who are taking interest in young people and things that we could do to encourage and build them up in ways that are right and ways that are good, and that's what we're going to be doing for these, for these couple of sessions today and throughout our worship tomorrow. Uh, as you've maybe seen on the screen and on the uh, flyers and the various advertisements on the internet and so forth for what's on, on tap for this weekend. I've titled this series of lessons, God's How-To Guide for Life. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, Paul writes there to his young brother in the faith, to Timothy, and he tells him about the value of Scripture. He says that all Scripture, it's breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a loaded passage, so much that we often draw out of that passage. That passage speaks to the, to the inspiration of Scripture. That passage talks about uh, the, the great many ways in which Scripture profits us. Scripture helps us to know what's right. That's what teaching is. It reproves us, so that means it helps to show us what's wrong as well. It corrects us. That means it helps us to get right. And then it trains us for righteousness. It helps us to stay right. But the thing that I'm of particular interest in is those last couple of statements. Scripture is given to us so that the man of God or the woman of God or the young man of God or the young woman of God, we can be complete, whole. Gives us everything that we need to be equipped for every good work. And what that says to me is, is that says to me that the Bible, God's Word, it provides us everything that we're going to need to be able to navigate through this life. The things that we have questions about, the things that we have concerns about, the things that we're trying to, as we're figuring out and mapping the course of our life. And young people, you're in that phase right now. We turn to God's Word, and it's going to give us all of the how-tos that we need And we'll talk about some how-to sorts of things over the course of these couple days that I think will be of particular interest to young people and really just to people of all ages. And this first lesson in particular, I slotted it into the first spot on purpose with the hope that all the parents and the grandparents and the older folks would come and want to know, what is that about? What is that lesson about? Well, 
Let's find out. In Genesis, the 42nd chapter, read with me if you will. In Genesis chapter 42, I'm reading here about Joseph's brothers, beginning in verse 29. In Genesis 42 and in verse 29, when they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. Now, if you know anything about this story, about the story of Joseph and his brothers, then you know that a lot had happened to them. But the bottom line really comes down near the end of the chapter when they need to bring their youngest brother Benjamin back to Egypt. Pick up in verse 34. Verse 34, they're told, Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. Verse 36, And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, I'll bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, that passage, in many ways, is a passage about persuasion. And in many ways, I think it's a passage that young people can relate to. You know, we hear sermons all the time about what's wrong with today's youth. We talk about alcohol. We talk about drugs. We talk about crime and premarital sex and pornography and internet this and rap music that and on and on we go. We have lots to say to young people about the kinds of things that they can involve themselves in that lead to sin and to wickedness. But if you ask most of today's young people, hey, what's wrong with the world? Our young people can tell you immediately and succinctly what is wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is that my mom and my dad won't let me do what I want to do. That's the problem in the world today. The problem is not the fact that I have not lived very long and that I lack the experience and that I lack the decision-making skills to navigate through the wickedness of this world. No, 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 no. The problem is there's all this stuff. There's a big wide world of stuff that I want to try and I want to see and I want to do and I want to experience and my mom and dad won't get out of the way. Mom and dad are just holding me back. Mom and dad are holding the reins so tightly. Actually... It's not even the fact that they're holding the reins tightly. It's the fact that they're even holding the reins at all. I need to go and I need to do and I need to be. I need to have some things happen for me and my parents are keeping me from all of that good stuff. If only my parents would let me do what I want to do. Man, how much better would life be? How much better would the world be? Sometimes we feel that way, don't we, young people? We do. We feel that way when we're... Maybe a preteen, got lots of preteens here today. You feel that way especially when you become a teenager, when you get that license and now you've got some ability to drive and to go and do some things on your own. I remember that that's the way that I felt when I was that age, which is why this afternoon I'm going to be your best friend. How do you like that? I'm going to be the best friend of every single young person in this room. Because I've got a sermon that is just tailor-made for you if you feel that way. Because what I want to show you for the next few minutes this afternoon is I want to talk to you about how you 
can talk your mom and your dad into anything. And I do pretty much mean anything. And I want to show you how you can do that without having to resort to all of those lame little lines and those lame little excuses that young people say whenever they're trying to get their way. Do you know the kinds of things I'm talking about? When we say things like, but, 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 but everybody's doing it. Or when we say, you know, my friends will make fun of me if I don't get to go to that place. Or, you know, I'll just die. I'll die if I can't get to do this. No, we're not going to say those sorts of things. We're not going to mess around with any of that kind of nonsense. That kind of stuff doesn't work. What I want to give you this afternoon are some powerful principles of persuasion. Some things that I think in many ways will awe your parents. If you know anything about this story in Genesis chapter 42, then you know that those boys eventually, they did convince their father to allow them to return to the land of Egypt with Benjamin in tow. And just as they were able to persuade their dad, I'm convinced that you can do the same. And this afternoon I'm going to show you how you can do that. Now, there's one caveat before we even get into the hows and the whats of all of this. There's one caveat, one disclaimer that I need to just put out here right at the very beginning. And it needs to undergird everything that we're going to talk about. Everything that I'm going to say, it is all predicated on absolute and total honesty on your part. You cannot lie to your parents. That is not an option. We're taking that option off of the table. If you do lie, then it isn't going to work. Just throw the whole thing out. We're not going to lie. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that you can do this without lying. And come on, we can convince our folks without having to resort to something sinful, can't we? Sure we can. We can talk our parents into pretty much anything if we utilize these biblical principles this afternoon. Three things. Are you ready to hear those things? Are you ready to write those things down and put them into practice? Let's get right to it. Let me tell you first of all, That if you want to convince your parents, talk your parents into something and get them to say yes to your requests, then you're going to have to start with this. You're going to have to assure them that evil companions are not going to be involved. If the number one concern of teenagers is mom and dad saying no all the time, then I can tell you with certainty what the number one concern of mom and dad is. And that is evil companions. Think about this, when a child is brought into this world, mom and dad in the very beginning are his or her sole influence. They dominate that baby's life. Everybody else in the beginning has no real measurable impact. It's mom and dad. It's all about mom and dad. It's about their approval. It's about what they want. It's about getting their attention. That is, until until the moment when that kid goes... Maybe to daycare for the first time. Or when that kid goes to Bible class for the first time. Or when that kid especially goes to school for the first time. On that day, when that moment arrives, everything changes. Because now there are all these new people in that child's life. Because now not only is it important that mom and dad approve of me, now it's important that little Johnny approves of me. Or little Susie approves of me. You know, these kids that I, that I know from school, these kids that I know from daycare, these kids that I see at the playground from day to day, now I want them to approve of me. 
And what happens there is a trend that never, ever reverses. It's just a one-way street. Parental influence declines and peer influence starts to incline. The need for parental acceptance becomes less and less and the need and the desire for peer acceptance becomes more and more. And I must tell you that as a parent, that absolutely terrifies me. Because I know, I know what evil companions can do. And that means as a parent, if you're going to convince me to say yes, then this right here is where you have to start. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's just get this verse. You know the verse I'm going to, don't you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle says some here, speaking directly to the company that we keep. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is verse 33. In 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 33, Paul writes there, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I know the truth of that passage. I know it first and foremost because it's in God's Word. And that means as a parent that the first thing that I want to know before you leave my watchful eye is, who are you going with? Who else is going to be there at this thing that you're going to? What kind of people are liable to show up at this event? Who's going to be watching you and all the other people who are there? I want to know about 1 Corinthians 15.33 as it pertains to the people that you're going to be around and the company that you're going to keep. Now, you may not like that. You may not care for that. But I will tell you this. I can say that passage, I can recite that passage in my sleep blindfolded because I know it's true. I've seen it. I've lived it. I am the guy who when I was a teenager, I cussed like a sailor. I used four-letter words when I was away from the watchful care of my parents. And I did that not because I was somehow ignorant of what the Bible said about filthy communications. No, there wasn't a knowledge problem there. No, I did that because I got around some other kids who had potty mouths and they taught me how to have a potty mouth too. And as well. I had friends who knew full well about the evils of drugs and alcohol. They graduated from the D.A.R.E. program just like I did. I got the black t-shirt. They got the black t-shirt. We all did that in middle school. Every one of us got school about how bad drugs are. Say no to drugs. But then when they got to high school, they made new friends. They made friends who helped them very quickly to forget all of that stuff that they once had learned. And as a result, they ended up destroying their lives with drugs and with alcohol. And I am sad to say that some of them, in fact, many of them, are now dead. And I am the guy as well who now stands at the front of the auditorium whenever that invitation song is sung. And far too many times I have witnessed a young Christian lady come walking down that aisle. And she's got tears streaming down her face. And she's there to confess that she has fornicated. And now she is pregnant with child because she was with a boy who helped her to make a bad, bad decision. Evil companions corrupt 
good morals. That is the truth. My own life experience says that it's true. And you know what? Even if I didn't have that from my own life experience, I could turn to the Word of God and I would know it to be so. In Judges, the 14th chapter, please. Go back to the Old Testament again. In Judges 14, we read here about a fella who seemingly had a lot going on for him, had a lot of muscle to him, had nice long flowing hair. I imagine he was a handsome strapping young guy. And he could have done so much, been such an asset to the people of God, to the Israelite nation. But instead, in Judges 14 and in verse 1, we're told that Samson, he went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Can I tell you what happened with Samson? Samson ended up hanging around with Philistines. Way too much hanging around with Philistines. He hung around a lot of Philistine women. And he ended up as a failure of a bulked up mess. That's the story of Samson. Look in Samuel now, in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 13. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're told here about a young man whose father was a man after God's own heart. This is the guy who's one of the sons of David. I know that his dad would have taught him what was right. And yet, despite all of that, we are told that he finds himself in a terrible predicament. In 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill. Because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Verse 3 now. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Do you know how the rest of this story goes? The way the rest of this story goes is that Amnon is influenced by his crafty friend Jonadab to concoct this scheme, to concoct this plan that results in the rape of his half-sister. What a friend that guy turned out to be, huh? What about the New Testament in the book of John? In John chapter 18. In John 18, this is during the trial of Jesus Christ in this just bogus kangaroo court. We're told that at least one of the apostles was following at a distance because he wanted to see exactly what was going on. But he found himself in a precarious situation in John the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 18. We're told there, John 18, 18, Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You know what happened next, don't you? Peter began to curse. He began to swear. Began to act in ways that were just totally unbecoming of an apostle of Jesus. He ends up denying the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And as parents, we know. We know that no good thing comes from standing around the devil's fire. Now young people, you need to ask yourself right now. Are you asking your mom and your dad for permission for something that's going to involve evil companions? 
Is that car that you are so eager to borrow for the night, is that going to serve as transportation so that you can go and you can be with godless people doing godless things? Is this party that you're wanting to go to and to be involved in, that you're just dying to be able to just die if I can't get to go there? Is that party going to be the scene of wild debauchery and immorality? And you're going to be around people who could care, could not care less about God or about His Word or about His church? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then this just isn't going to work very good, is it now? You can't lie to mom and dad. Remember, we already took that off of the table. And furthermore, you can't lie to yourself. You can't deceive yourself by saying, Oh, oh I'm going to be around a bunch of people who, yeah, I know that they're... They're not Christians. They don't really care about the Lord. These are children of the devil. And they're actively trying to undermine my values and destroy my faith. But, ah, come on. It's not going to affect me. I'll not be bothered or affected by that. Listen to me, young people. You may not understand it right now, but you are at a time in your your life when you are at the very most vulnerable to what other people say and think about you. When you are the very most just moldable and pliable to the opinions of other people around you. And for you to think that, oh, I can, I can just kind of buddy up with people over here who are, who are people of the world, people who hate God, who despise His Word, who don't care anything about the Lord or about His people, people who just flagrantly go about flaunting and bragging about their sin, and that won't affect me. You are fooling yourself. You are absolutely fooling yourself. Let me let you in on a little secret here. When you come and you ask your parents to go and be in places like that and do things like that, and they then say to you, no, no, you're not going. No, you're not going to be involved in that. And then you respond with some kind of a whiny, sassy remark like, well, you just don't trust me. Do you know what your parents are thinking in that moment? Your parents are thinking... Duh! Of course we don't trust you! Absolutely we don't trust you! That's the reason that we're saying no to that request. By that very dumb and foolish request in the first place, you are indicating that you do not have the maturity, that you do not have the wisdom, you do not have the appreciation for the cautions and the warnings that God's Word sounds forth about evil companions. What that request says to me as a parent is that you're just not ready for me to let go of those reins. Who's influencing you? That is an incredibly important facet of your life. And as parents, I think I can probably speak on behalf of all the other parents in this room. As parents, we are going to actively, and dare I say jealously, seek to control and to guard your peer influences for as long as we possibly can. And so if you want to convince us to say yes to your requests, then you're going to have to start right here. Assure us that you're not going to be around people of the devil. I would tell you secondly, that if you want to persuade your parents into letting you do something, make some request of them, then you're going to need to do the second thing. You're going to need to tell them and let them know that this is not going to lead to worldliness. Look with me in James, the first chapter, please. In James chapter 1, this is one of those great nutshell passages in the Bible. I like little verses like this where just so much is said in one little passage. 
And it sums up so much of what we are and what we are to be about as the people of God. In James chapter 1, James just does a nice little summary of what Christianity is in this little verse. In James 1 verse 27, James says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Two things. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, care for people who are downtrodden and those who are less fortunate. And then secondly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want you to focus on that second part of the equation there. Unstained. Your translation may say unspotted from the world. Do you understand what that means, young person? In fact, this is a great place where we can just let the Bible kind of do the defining for us. Would you just turn over a page or two in First Peter chapter 1? In First Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks here about Jesus... In 1 Peter chapter 1, look in verse 19, he uses similar language. 1 Peter 1 verse 19, we're told there that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you understand that? Do you understand what without blemish or without spot means in regards to Jesus? Then I think we can understand what it means in James 1.27 then. When it says that we, as the followers of Jesus, are seeking to be unstained, unspotted by this world. What James is calling us to, and incidentally what Peter is calling us to as well, is to purity, to holiness, to a life that will seek to imitate and follow in the footsteps of our Master, the Shepherd, Jesus. And one of the problems that it's been my observation that I think we have is not so much that our kids are worldly, but that they sure want to be worldly. I think most of our kids, by and large, they know better than to just dive off into just terrible and scandalous sin. But what they want and what they seek to do so often is to snuggle up next to it just as close as they possibly can be. And it doesn't matter where this could possibly lead to. It doesn't matter if it just, just smacks of sin and it could get them into some real trouble and real iniquity. It doesn't matter if it, if it just smells of the fire and the very smoke of hell itself. Young people who just without any thought and without any kind of concern just jump right into that. They're not asking the question, is this worldly? Is this going to lead to worldliness? Could this spot me? Could this stain me in some way? When you come and talk to your mom and dad, this right here, number two, young people, this needs to be a major consideration. Because as the people of God, our attitude towards sin is not, hey, how close can I get to the fire without being burned? That's not our attitude. That is not our approach to Christianity. Our attitude towards sin is, I need to get away. I want to stay as far away from that. I want as much distance between me and that as I can possibly put between us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul gives instructions once again to his young brother in the Lord, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 22, he says to him, 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee! Flee! Not cuddle up! Don't cozy up! Flee! I like Monty Python and the Holy Grail is my favorite movie, favorite comedy. There's a scene in the movie where they always talk about, run away! That's what Paul's saying here. Run away! Get away! Flee from that! Don't get near to those things. Do you hear that, young people? Our attitude.
attitude needs to be, I don't want to be around things that are going to lead me to worldliness. I don't want to be near things that could cause me to trip up and to sin. The classic example of that in the Bible to me is that young man Joseph. And the reason for that is not because he failed, but because he did so well. Would you go back to Genesis again in Genesis 39? In Genesis chapter 39, we read here about Joseph being harassed on the job. This may be actually the original instance of sexual harassment in the workplace. Joseph is being harassed to do the wrong thing with his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife. Notice what's said in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 7. Genesis 39, verse 7, After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and she said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my, in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What a, what a profound statement to make. What a very mature thing to say in that moment. But you know what? This is going to take more than just saying the right words. It was good for him to say those words, but it's going to take more than just words. Keep reading verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hands, he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house. Would you please notice what Joseph did not do and what Joseph did not say? Joseph did not say, well, lady, I, I don't think it would be a good idea for me to lie with you like you're asking, but I don't think it would hurt if we flirted a little bit. I don't think it would be all that bad if we who maybe held hands for a little while. You know what, come to think of it, we could probably hug and, and kiss a little bit. I think that'd be okay. No. No, Joseph did exactly what Paul told Timothy to do. He got himself up and fled. He got out of there. Now, young person, as a parent, what I want to know is I want to know where is this going to lead? What else could happen here at this place or this activity that you're wanting to be involved in? Those are the kinds of things that I think godly parents are just constantly thinking about. And no, young people, let me say this as well, your parents are not stupid. They're not. Your parents know that listening to music in and of itself, that that's not sinful and that's not wrong. But you know what? Your parents also know that when you listen to music and you dim the lights real low, and when boys and girls hold each other close, and they begin to sway together to that music, they know that that also is a formula for wrongful sexual desire, and that leads to immorality. Your parents know that. And your parents know as well that the Bible does not say, thou shalt not swim. There's not a verse in the Bible that says that it's sinful to go swimming. But you know what your parents also know? Your parents also know that when you put a bunch of teenagers, a bunch of teenage boys and a bunch of teenage girls in skimpy little bathing suits and you throw them into a swimming pool together, they know that the chances for lust and for lewdness and for lasciviousness, that it increases a thousandfold. 
And yes, your folks know as well that it is not illegal to be driving down Highway 50 at 3.30 in the morning. That's not illegal in and of itself. But they also know that precious little good has ever come from driving down Highway 50 at 3.30 in the morning. These are tough truths to try to get young people to understand. But we are resolute as parents because we know that those kinds of things, they often can and in fact they often do lead to other things. And we know as well that a young person can put himself or herself in a position and in a situation where they are called upon at like lightning fast speeds to have to make decisions that they are not capable of making in that moment in a good way. And we know that a young person can get themselves in a circumstance where they are pretty quickly finding that they are way in over their head and in that moment even the very best kids can fall into sin in the snap of a finger. Your parents want to know, young people, what is this going to lead to? What you need to do is you need to comfort their minds. Be honest, but comfort their minds. And help them see and explain to them that this is not going to lead to sin and it's not going to lead to the ways of this world. When you do that, I believe you'll find that you get a whole lot more yeses than you do noes. Finally, this afternoon, if you want to know how to talk your parents into anything, then what you're really going to need to do is you're going to need to state emphatically that you are willing to accept their decision regardless of what the answer is. Have you ever seen what happens whenever you say no to a five-year-old? I currently have a five-year-old. She's sitting back there. Uh, Hattie is her name. And if you come to my house for a few days, and if you've never seen what happens when you say no to a five-year-old, you come to my house for a few days, and you will see pretty quickly what happens when you say no to a five-year-old. We are right in the thick of that storm in my house. Anytime Hattie does not get her way, she's wanting to do something, she has to do something, and she hears us tell her no, and then we even give her some explanation and some reasons as to why we're saying no. It it doesn't take long. I mean like 2.5 seconds, and that lip starts to curl out, and she starts getting the pouty face going on, and she sometimes gets the waterworks working a little bit, and she crosses her arms and does the hmm, I mean literally does the hmm thing, and goes storming into her room, and she wants to slam the door shut. I understand about all of that. And I mean it's just the most dramatic thing that you have ever seen. You think somebody shot Barbie or something to watch her act in that way. The fits that she goes into when she's told no. But you know what? That's kind of on par for a five-year-old. We kind of expect that out of little kids. And yet all too often, that's the kind of reaction that you get out of out of 10-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds or 18-year-olds, maybe even 20-year-old kids. Why do my parents treat me this way? Why do my parents treat me like I'm some kind of a five-year-old? Well, I wonder why. You know, the Bible says something about that. Would you look in the wisdom literature with me? Look in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 15, let's grab a couple of verses in Proverbs 15. Here the wise man says this. The book of Proverbs is extremely helpful for young people. In fact, the beginning of the book kind of makes it known. It's some things that a father, a parent, was writing to his son. 
See, young people, there's just pearls of just good stuff in Proverbs. We want to apply those things. Proverbs 15, look in verse 5. Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despises his father's instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Drop down to verse 32, same chapter. Verse 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Let me just shoot straight with you, young people. When you act like a five-year-old, every time mom and dad doesn't just automatically cave in to your brilliant requests and your brilliant and wonderful ideas, then what you are doing is you are demonstrating what the Bible calls folly. Which in fact just exposes the reality that you are not worthy of more trust. Look at me in the New Testament in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is a passage that we, we cite often to parents, and uh, as well we should, and specifically to fathers, because there is a just heavy charge that is laid here upon the shoulders of fathers. In Ephesians 6, I want all of us looking at not just if you're a father, I want the young people to look at this verse. In Ephesians 6, look in verse 4. There Paul directs fathers, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That passage puts upon me incredible pressure. There's really not a day goes by that I don't think about Ephesians 6 verse 4. I know and I realize that someday my child, she is going to stand on her own before the Lord. And I realize that she is going to be judged for what she has done or what she has not done as an individual. But I also know as well that right now that I play a huge role in her spiritual development and I play a part in her eternal destiny. And I know, as I think about that, and I look down the stream of time, it may be sooner rather than later, but I know, I know that God Himself will exact and require from me what I have done regarding the upbringing of my child. It is an enormous responsibility. Do you understand that, young people? Actually, I'm not going to ask you, do you understand it? Can you at least appreciate the enormous responsibility that has been placed upon parents and especially upon fathers. I think about it constantly. Whether I'm being a good father or whether I'm failing at that. Whether I'm giving too much rope or whether I'm not giving enough rope. Whether I am helping my child to be independent and to think for herself or whether I am domineering and overlording way too much. And that in fact may cause her to rebel and to push away from God. I think about those kinds of things all the time, 24-7. And I'm going to say that probably every godly parent in this room right now, they think about that. They think about whether they are doing Ephesians 6 verse 4. But would you look at verse 1? Look at verse 1. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the compensation that the good Lord has given to parents. That we are supposed to, at least in some way, we are to be able to work with at least semi-compliant children who will appreciate the huge and monumental task that has been set upon us by God Himself. And as a result, young people, God's expectation is that you will, that you will work with us. 
that you will cooperate with us to some degree and not work against us. You look at Ephesians 6 verse 1. Let me just ask you right now, young people. Do you see that as a command of God? Do you see that as a command of God on par with like the command of baptism? Or the command to take the Lord's Supper? Do you see that as being a requirement for you to one day go to heaven? You ought to look at it in those terms. I realize that you may not have nearly as many responsibilities as your mom and your dad do, but you have at least this one. Even if you've got nothing else on your plate to do in life, you've got this one thing to do, and that is to obey your parents. All of which leads me to say that obedience, obedience is not pouty, grumpy, sassy compliance where we just sulk around, fine, I'll do it. Fine, I guess I'll do that. I'll do what you told me to do. Where we do that with a lousy and condescending attitude. That is not the obedience that God is calling for. Let me just ask you this. Let's make this parallel. Is God pleased whenever we come to worship? God asks us to do that. Okay, we come to worship. But then we come here... And we just do that in a half-hearted, ugly, attitude sort of way. Give me that song book. All right, I'll sing that song. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, Is God pleased with that? I'll give you a pinch of that cracker and give me a swig of that grape juice. Fine, I'll do that Lord's Supper thing. Is God satisfied with that? Does that please the Heavenly Father when He sees His children? Yes, they're, they're outwardly obeying. They're doing the right actions. But what's going on on the inside? It's ugly. And it's half-hearted. And they're, they're not about the business of doing that. There's sourness in that. No, God is not pleased. We are to trust the Lord and love the Lord. So much so that we will then come and we will willingly bring our worship to Him. Is it too much to say then that a teenager who sourly and sassily goes through the motions obeying of obeying... Is it too much to say that that teenager is actually not doing what Ephesians 6 verse 1 commands? You mark it down, young people. You will never convince your parents to treat you like an adult when you're always acting like a five-year-old. But when you can reach the point in your development where you actually are able to respectfully accept mom and dad's decisions, even if it's not the decisions that you would prefer, then I believe you will have taken a huge step in developing some real maturity. And you will have taken a huge step in being able to persuade your parents and to earn their trust. Now, probably at this point, what several of our young people are thinking is, is, boy, that sermon was a bust. How to talk your parents into anything. That's not what I was expecting, Josh. I didn't really get out of that what I was hoping to get out of that. I was hoping to be able to ask my mom and dad for a brand new car. And you really didn't give me any information that helps me to that goal. And so if maybe I misled you with the title of this sermon this afternoon, then I'll apologize for that a little bit. On the other hand, if you listened to this sermon, and you listened in hopes that I would show you how you can talk your parents into letting you go to wild parties... And talk your parents into letting you do other things that are wrong and sinful to go drink a beer or to smoke a joint. 
then I'm not going to tell you that I'm sorry. In fact, the only thing that I'm sorry for is the fact that you have misplaced desires. Because what I hope you have seen this afternoon is that if you can't work your requests through this matrix of biblical principles, then that's a pretty good indicator that you are asking for things that you shouldn't be asking for in the first place. As parents, we love you more than we love you more than we can even say. There are days I think about the, the feelings and the affection that I have for my child and for the unborn child that's in my wife's womb right now. And it's overwhelming. I can't even put into words how I feel about that. And so all we want as your parents is we do want, I know it sounds cliche, but we do want what is best for you. And we want what is best for you so that one day together, on the day of eternity, we will be able to surround the throne of God. And we'll be able to bring praises to Him throughout the ages of the ages. And so until that day comes, I feel very confident in saying that every parent here, we want to say yes to your requests as much as we possibly can. But we're only going to say yes without endangering your eternal soul. And I'll tell you this, young people, I'll say this without hesitation or without any reservation. If it's not right, then we will never, ever say yes. And we will never apologize for loving you enough to say no. Now, let me tell you something that we love to say yes to. A request that is sometimes brought to the ears of parents, to the ears of preachers, to the ears of other adults. And it is the request that someone may have, especially a young person, and they express their desire to want to be baptized into Christ. They want to become a child of God. Man, I love getting to say yes to those requests. It is contingent upon some things. It's first of all contingent upon your understanding of the gospel, that you do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's just enormous evidence from Scripture and even even outside of Scripture that declares that to be so, namely His resurrection from the dead. If you believe that and have that conviction working within you, so much so that you are ready and willing to confess Christ before others, if you recognize and understand what sin is, and you can see sin in your life, and you realize, I I can't do anything about that on my own. I need forgiveness. I I need the Lord to to, to help me with that and remove that, that stain from my soul. And if you're willing to repent, turn away from sin, turn to the Lord, And if you're ready to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, man, who am I to stand in the way and say no to someone who gets that? I will eagerly say yes. I think Greg would eagerly say yes. So many others here would eagerly say yes and let us help you to become a Christian. Are you ready to take those steps? Brother or sister, it may be that you've not been living the way that you ought to as one of God's children. It's a wonderful opportunity as well. We're here together with kindred spirits, people who care about the Lord and love the Lord, and people who love you. Can we encourage you, pray with you, and do do something to help you in a spiritual way? Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make those known by coming to the front. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.